Hello and welcome to the Constitution Podcast. This is Carla Gilar. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone who listened to the first episode that we released last month. Thank you very much for listening and enjoying the conversation I had with Orion Ferris of Doom. And yeah, we are going to continue doing this podcast. And now we're, like I said, we're in episode two. Uh, for this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to one of the people behind a nonprofit organization called Save Our Languages Through Federalism. It's a nonprofit organization that advocates for changes in the current language policy that is enshrined especially in the Constitution. So to get a better idea of the advocacy, I talked to one of its trustees. His name is Arby Librilia. It was a very interesting discussion, and I actually got to learn some new insights on what the sound language policy is. So, without further ado, let's go ahead to the interview with R.V. Lebrilia. Hello, Arby. Now we are live in this uh, uh, recording. Uh, first of all, thank you uh, for accepting my invite uh, on behalf of your organization, uh, which we'll be talking to in a bit later. Um, but first, uh, can you uh, tell me more about yourself and what you do? Uh, with like personally or within the organization? Um, we- uh, personally, Muna. Then we'll go with the organization. Uh, personally, what I do is for a living, I sell beer for a living. So, sales? Sales, yes. Mm-hmm. But, okay. the rep. And, and where are you from? I'm from, I'm a native of Iloilo. From, specifically right now, I'm from Oton, Iloilo. Uh, from the municipality of Oton from mm-hmm. the province of Iloilo. And are you currently based in Iloilo or somewhere else Cur- now? Currently based in Iloilo. Okay, okay. That also apart from your work in this beer company, you are also part of the organization which you're representing, the Save Our Languages Through Federalism, right? So... Can you tell yes. me more about your yeah? So can you tell me more about your organization and your role there? Right. Uh, first off, about the organization itself, it's uh, it's an advocacy group. Basically, what we believe in is that um, it's basically an extended. What we believe in is an extended form of freedom of expression. So uh, our intent is that we would like to support and encourage policies that uh, um, policies that focus on the freedom of expression by way on the people's personal choice and right to speak whatever language is theirs. I see. And for my role in the organization, I sit on the board of trustees. Are you one of the found? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. 
uh, I'm not one of the founding uh, founding members of the organization, but as it as I came late into the organization itself, but currently I sit on the board of trustees and um well it's it's hard to define that role exactly because even though I sit on the board of trustees, most of the responsibilities and activities I've had during my time in the organization involved grassroots work because we have a very specific and um, deliberately limited um, membership pool because we would like a direct hand in the activities and in the programs that we direct and we operate. I see. And how long has this organization been uh, in existence, if you would know? Uh, from what I could remember, we have been around since 2006. Probably, uh, or um, we've been around probably before 2006. I am only saying 2006 because 2006 is when we were registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. So in, in a legal sense, we were born the moment we were registered with SEC. Okay, so you are actually a SEC registered organization. That's good to know. Okay. Because uh, it's, although, because as you said, although we've, the organization been around since 2006, it's not much, uh, we could say it's not that, the awareness for this organization is not really mainstream. In fact, on my end, I only heard about your organization like a year or two ago. So that's where I became first familiar with your organization. Well, uh, yes, um, we definitely we can't say that Solfed is within mainstream consciousness um, because as far well, if, if we think about it, if, if we think about the organization, the policy and the ideas come first before the organization. And if the policies and the ideas aren't themselves mainstream, then it should follow that the organizations that advocate or are active for those ideas and policies wouldn't be mainstream as well. And um, from my point of view, my organization, even amongst those who oppose our ideas, we only started to emerge in their consciousness when the ideas that we were promulgating also started to be to present itself in the general population's population's consciousness, like for example, the federalism, the multilingualism. Um, when these uh, policies started emerging in the general population and in their in their awareness, it was only then that bit by bit, Solfed became more or less known. The way I see it. So, in your perspective, I suppose that the, you know, the federalism campaign that uh, began to grow into the public consciousness back uh, 2016-2017 has been beneficial, so, so to speak, to the awareness of the organization. Uh, my answer, am I understanding it correct? Uh, from. Uh, uh personal opinion personal opinion yes i can't speak for the rest for the rest of my yeah. organization but speaking mm-hmm. for myself even though i do represent the organization in some way personally that's how i see it because i mean the ideas 
something like solfed can only become significant if it presents a idea that could potentially overtake other people's minds. And before then, when, when uh, federalism and multilingualism started to gain traction, only then did we become, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call it a flashpoint, but I would call it, well, for lack of a better word, I would call it a target. Because when, when there's something that you would like to oppose, that something needs a face, that something needs a symbol. And among those symbols, you want people who you could lump together under one specific class so that you may, in some way, uh, create your other, uh, so to speak. As you mentioned earlier, your, your, your organization aims to promote the awareness of the diversity of Philippine languages and currently um, for the benefit of those who may not have an idea what is the state of the the, the, the state of languages in the country and why would you say there is a need for there's a need, need uh, there's, there should be attention given to it even though in the current constitution there is the enshrine, uh, enshrined principle of having a national language, which is Filipino. Well, I think it's a question of basic freedoms. So the thing about that, the thing we need to understand about this provision that we have find written, basically written on stone on the Constitution is that it is not an open. It is not an open direction. It is a. It, it basically it's a mandate, meaning that, as far as culture is this is concerned, as far as the constitution is concerned, Filipino culture is defined by these, by the following details, by the following aspects. It is Filipino, and everything else is auxiliary to that idea of what a Filipino is, without actually defining what the Filipino is because it says there that Congress will define what Filipino is. And the problem with that is you can't have a natural and emergent culture if said culture is if said culture is by design a deliberate effect of legislation. Meaning you can't legislate culture. Because if you do, that culture will be artificial, that culture would be in all aspects a lie. So the th I think the reason why we should be aware and we should pay attention to our language causes and our, our language advocacies is that it's not so much a, an enthusiasm for or an, adv an advocacy for something we, we often take for granted. It's more a it's more in the pursuit of people's basic freedoms to be who they are. And if you're telling someone that they can't be who they are because if they are who they are and what who they are isn't Filipino, it's basically saying that who they are based on their language is illegitimate. And you can't have a cohesive state if the people who populate that state are illegitimate, culturally speaking. Well, that word you said there, illegitimate, 
uh, some may consider it a very very strong language um, but uh, in the context of what you're saying it's the what your organization is supposed to is like the sort of like a forced imposition of Philippine of what a Filipino language is uh, do I understand it correct? Yes and no. Yes, because the Filipino language that is imposed at the moment is artificial in form. And no, because I would say in the bigger scheme of things, what we are advocating for is that culture should not be legislated. It should be allowed to emerge freely and on its own. It should be, um, it should be organic. And, all right, case in point. I understand the argument for Filipino. And if we look at another language, another artificial language, uh, we come to the same conclusions about it. Another language that we could look at is Esperanto. Now, mm-hmm. the ideas behind Esperanto are the same behind Filipino. The point of Esperanto was they were looking for something that could unite the world by creating a one-world language. Now, Esperanto has been around for a very long time, probably longer than Filipino, and it has yet to achieve any of its ideals. Because, lo and behold, Esperanto has yet to create a one-world government, a one-world nation, and people. Human nature dictates a sense of individuality. And uh, the, the problem with Filipino is that it believes that it could create an identity and then impose that identity on those who have their own identity. And, and, and that is what we are in opposition to, the, the legislation of culture. Mm-hmm. I see. On the other hand, though, there would be, you know, the supporters of the Filipino language saying that um, right now it is ev- uh, evolving and it is being widely u- uh, at at least somewhat widely used, especially in the media, because uh, they uh, they would contend that much of the media is adopting the language of Filipino. So, do you think that is a... Is it an ill effect that would be a detriment to the other languages? Or or is it a... Or is it somewhat uh, beneficial to the development of the Filipino language? What is the view on that? From the perspective of my organization as a whole, what we would want is that we should recognize that there is no one singular Filipino language in the same way that there is no singular Filipino identity. Because the problem with Filipino is that it is is a product of monocultural thinking this idea that in order for a nation to exist, it should have only one identity, and which simply isn't true. So, the problem with Filipino is that it will never develop because it was because it is forced and it will never achieve the things that it set out to do because rather than including people, it, it alienates people and that what we need 
Well, here's the thing. People will always need a lingua franca. My argument is that people should be allowed to choose their own lingua franca. Now, the problem with Filipino is that there is no choice. There is only Filipino. So, as far as its detrimental effect on other cultures are concerned, um, to you, well, it's ba you've, you've basically created a Darwinist situation among cultures. And one culture in particular has and enjoys government support. And being that government will always have a monopoly on violence and the purse strings of the entire country, I think in a Darwinist perspective, it's pretty clear which singular culture will probably exist in the end. Everything else being a product of archaeology at that point. But of course, there would be those who would contend that without a single cultural identity which they would attach as Filipino there is no sense of a united country or something to that effect that without a single yeah, uniting factor which in this case would be like the Filipino language or the Filipino culture then the, the country would you know, fall apart. So, what do you, how do you, what is, uh, how do you contend to those uh, uh, arguments or fears? Well, I understand where that fear is coming from because it's, um, I don't want to become, or I don't want to sound too ac academic about this, but there are two terms in particular that come to mind when I, come to mind when I hear those arguments. The first one is taste, the second one is canon. Because what Filipino basically does is it creates a set of particulars that define good taste and a set of classical literature or cultural artifacts that it sets up as the canon. And anything that doesn't, basically it becomes an exclusive, an exclusionary, an exclusionary identity. And Anything and everything that doesn't come within that umbrella is considered to be barbaric and or foreign. So basically, if you follow, if you follow those fears and those arguments to their logical conclusion, then someone who does not speak Filipino, who speaks a language that isn't Filipino but is native to the Philippines, becomes a foreigner in his own land. So... In effect, what you get is the complete opposite. Rather than uniting a country, you are alienating an entire country. And, and and the problem with that is the definition of a Filipino language. It's 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 the, if we follow that argument back from its logical conclusion to its source, it basically posits that there is only one true Filipino identity and all other Filipino identities are Ill illegitimate. Because it's saying that there's only one language rather than several, 173 Filipino languages, meaning that there's only one culture and this culture is not inclusive of all other cultures that happen to be indigenous to the country. So if that were so, then rather than pulling people in, you're actually pu pushing people out because they fail to meet your good taste 
and they fail to be a part of the canon that you created. And, and that is the problem. I guess the question is, how can we, how can we see inclusivity considering the challenge that there are like 170 plus languages being spoken? How do we deal like those 170 plus languages considering the sheer number? Um, well, the problem with answering that question is that more often than not, the, quick, the quickest answer and the most simplistic answer that people come up with is more legislation. And that's problematic because if, you're, if you oppose legislating culture in one way, then you should also oppose the legislation of culture in every other way. Because just as you cannot, it would be unjust to have to legislate one culture to dominate others, it will also be unjust to legislate to define all other cultures as this or as that and setting that up as the new measure of good taste or the new canon. And basically, um, from a policy perspective, what I would like personally, and I think um, my organization agrees with me on this, is that it's our language provisions should should come as an as ancillary points to a basic right that already exists, and that is the freedom of expression. First and foremost, what we should legislate is a basic right of a citizen to choose his or her language. Not just the language that he was born with, but the language that he or she wishes, wishes to speak. That's one end of it. That should be the policy end of it. And the other end of it is that in order for a language to flourish, it must have economic incentives because languages evolve based on the incentives that they are given. And the fact of the matter is languages die and languages are born based on those incentives. Now, this brings us into another pitfall wherein we legislate the creation of these incentives. And we've seen these We've seen this done before. When the Japanese were here, they legislated for the economic incentives that created the Tagalog language literary boom. And when in the past, uh, Cebuano literature, Ilongo literature, English literature, the, these and Tagalog literature, these were co-equal aspects of the Filipino culture. But then when the Japanese came, and, um, and uh, Japan, uh, uh, a Japanese, a, a Japanese culture that wa was at that time also a product of a nationalist movement in the East, brought those same ideas here and decided that they were going to inculcate those same ideas through economic incentives. That's where you see the sudden rise in uh, Tagalog literature and Tagalog content because money was being made off of that. So. Again, I, I don't want to stray into that territory because basically, again, you're right back to where the traps are, which is the manipulation of culture. So rather than doing that, I think I think the solution should be a personal solution because in order for 
a language to survive, that language should prove that eco it is economic, economically viable. And the only way that this language could prove that it is economically viable is if it creates content that people want to consume. So basically, in my perspective, the only way a language, our languages should survive is if they continue to create content, if they, is if they can create content that people want to consume. And, and that's the question which I haven't had an answer for yet because right now, culture and media are, is very changeable. I mean, yes, you can make the, you can make the argument that the domination of the, of the domination by Tagalog of mass media is ha having a detrimental effect on all other languages within the Philippines. But then I would counter that because of the internet right now is slowly inching its way into every every household in the Philippines. And it's only, it's bound to get better. And the better that it, it becomes, the more exposed people will be to media that is not limited to this country. And you'll notice that even more than before, a lot of Filipinos are subscribed to Netflix and a lot of Filipinos are listening to, to podcasts. And the way I see it, Netflix, YouTube, and podcasts are going to dictate which the kind of content that will become economically viable. And if you want your language, if you want your language to survive, then you have no choice but to create content for these media. I.e., if you want Hiligaynon to survive, you need to get a Hiligaynon series produced by Netflix. I mean, it's simplistic, but that's how I see it. Well, that will be interesting to see, like a Hiligaynon or Cebuano language content in an international yeah. platform like Netflix. That would be, like, yeah, that would be interesting CSI to see. Yeah. Or something. CSI Cebu or maybe like, I don't know. What else? What else do we have? What's good on Netflix right now? Like superheroes? I mean, I know there was a Kampampangan dude who wanted to create a serial that you that used the Kampampangan language and Kampampangan occultism for his supernatural series, but I, I don't know where that went. He tried to get it optioned with ABS, but I don't think that went anywhere because ABS to this day will not produce non-Tagalog shows. So, I guess it's. I guess now is the best time. The best up. Now is the time for us to grab our opportunities, because media are becoming more and more decentralized, more and more do-it-yourself, create your own content, and people will flock. So, if you want to save your language, the only way to save your language is to create content. Well, going to a little bit tangent on that. Um, since you mentioned Netflix. Uh, what about you know, offering subtitles in not only t uh, Tagalog but in other Philippine languages? Do you think that is uh, beneficial in the promotion or the development of those languages, saving them from, you know, decline? So basically, what if I'm getting this right, let's say you have a Tagalog show, but the Tagalog show has local language subtitles is that right sub 
subtitles or just came to my head or dubbed? Uh, what do you I, think of it? I'm not a big fan of dubs. Hmm. I, I pref- I've always preferred subtitles over dubs. Okay. Well, it's a thing. Um, I see subtitles as an opportunity for me to learn a foreign language. I.e., subtitles are in my language or in a language that I understand, but the voice has to be in a foreign language so that I could attempt to learn the foreign language. So, I guess, yes. I think, in a way, it encourages respect between two foreign cultures because it encourages encourages them to learn each other's languages. So, so I guess, um, what would benefit the Davoenyo would be a Bisaya show that's subtitled in Tagalog that Tagalogs would watch because they like it, and then that would allow them to find value in Bisaya culture, and then we would have a Tagalog show with Bisaya subtitles so that we would have, well, a vice versa and a mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah, that's a that's an uh, interesting idea. I'm not sure if it has been. I think some. I think there was like a many many years back. I've heard there's a a Cebu uh, Cebuano drama that was. I think it was actually dubbed in Tagalog. So uh, many many years back. So you know that's a. Uh, that's just a, an interesting thought when you mentioned that about the Netflix thing. I, I want to go back to mention something about the that it's not a good idea for language to be promoted. It's like sort of an economic incentive. Uh, in relation to that, because like in some, in, uh, maybe not some, but there are schools that promote something like an English-only policy as a way to... Uh, make students learn English and in some cases, you know, uh, impose sort of like heavy guidelines that penalize people from, penalizes, I'm not sure if penalizes, but some, I heard some do that if they speak a language other than English. Uh, What do you think of such policies uh, set in schools, uh, this time, in this case, favoring English? know the English all in policy I think such policies are problematic well, well here's the thing um, my son goes to a Waldorf school and in this school uh, their understanding is that a child should speak his or her local language native language from the ages of one to seven so that they would have a strong intellectual base from which they could reference other foreign languages and from ages seven that's when they start learning foreign languages so the problem with english only policies is that it creates a false reality for the student and further alienates the student from his native base because Basically, you're creating foreigners in their own country when, in fact, what you should be doing is that you should make the student understand which languages are foreign and that these languages are foreign but useful and that they should learn them and 
it, 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 it pulls us back right to the source of the problem, which is monoculturalism and English-only policies is basically monoculturalism. What we want is what we want is a student that is at the very least competent at speaking multiple languages, not just the one. So, yeah, we do have a problem with that. You mentioned it's uh, problematic that there seems to be a push towards monoculturalism, you know, favoring one certain language over another. And what I notice is even in the realm of, even not counting the other language, there seems to be a conflict between, you know, promoting English versus promoting Filipino. Why do you think there's no push for him? There seems to be no policy for mon- multilingualism or multiculturalism. Because people operate under the impression that everyone is stupid, I guess. <laughs> I guess people are operating under the impression, under the assumption that the human brain could only operate under one language and that it could only handle one language, which is false because personal experience, I, by default, operate on three. One, which I learned at home, two, which I learned at school. So, I, I, well, it, it's, I guess it comes right back to the philosophy that you assume that people are a priori incompetent or malicious and that you have to legislate good behavior into them. So I guess, yeah, um, that's a product of that way of thinking. I guess uh, going to that, uh, uh, maybe that last point you made, and I would like to circle back to this uh, the point you made earlier about uh, freedom, uh, freedom to speak in whatever language as a form of freedom of expression. And that is actually the first time that I've, uh, that someone connected the freedom to speak in any language as a, as part of the freedom of expression, part of the, as a human, as an, as a human right. And I haven't heard others uh, speak of it that way, which provides a whole new perspective on things with regards to language. Because uh, I think you would agree that the matter of language pretty uh, is an often overlooked uh, problem or issue with regards to uh, the identity, uh, regards to what we're facing in this country. Uh, I'd like to now touch on the matter of go to the matter of the national language. So, well, first of all, do you think there should be a national language for the Philippines? I do personally. I do believe that there should be a national language for the Philippines. Where I differ is in the definition because my definition for a national language is that for the Philip for the Philippines there should be multiple national languages and that our definition for a national language should be any language that is 
indigenous to the Philippines is a national language. And that's how I see it. Mm. So you believe that there should be more than one national language for, uh, that uh, the Philippines should adopt. And of, I guess that would uh, go back to uh, what I mentioned earlier as a concern about. In your opinion, how does one determine what a national language should be, considering like there are hundreds of languages? What, uh, in your opinion, what should be the criteria? The criteria should be any language that is indigenous to said nation. So it's it's a complicated problem with a simple solution, and the simple solution is that you do not impose. Instead, what you do is you recognize. So what what I say is, when you have multiple national languages, that is not a policy for imposing multiple national languages on a multiple people. No, what it should be is that you have multiple peoples, Filipino peoples, all of their languages are national. All of their languages are recognized within the national ident- within the national identity as we define it. Mm. Do we impose it? No. What we do is we recognize it and what we do is or what we should let the peoples do is that we should encourage them to pursue and determine what their culture should be. The most we can do is that we recognize said culture and that they should have a freedom, the freedom to determine what to do with that culture. So it would be complicated in the sense that from a top-down perspective, if you are an administrator within a central instrumentality of the government, you would have a hard time codifying and recognizing all of these languages, but from the bottom up, it would be a simple matter because within your area, you maybe only have to worry about seven languages because those are the only languages you need to speak every single day. Like in my case, in my case, I need only two. I need only I only need to speak Hiligaynon and Kinaraya because those are the only two languages that I face every day. Those are the only two languages that I need to deal with every single day. So I think it's. I think it's a question of where the policy should, policy should come from. Is it a policy that benefits the ability of certain instrumentalities to pursue their mandate, or is it a policy that gives people within their regions the freedom that they deserve? I mean, it's. I think the complication comes from a deterministic need of people in government to pursue their their responsibilities like they feel that they are not fulfilling their duties if they could not competently control and codify every aspect of nationhood but i mean i think they should, what they should do instead is relax and pe- let people be what they want to be I see. So you're saying that, you know, government should not worry about that. Let the people take care of that. Yes. Hmm. Basically, if you're going to have an a, an organ that supports a certain language, the f- you should put that language 
that organ at the very base of where that language is in the first place. No one in Manila should meddle with that language. The most that, a cap that Manila should do is say that this is a national language, this is recognized as part and, pa part and parcel of the national identity. It will not be imposed, but it will be recognized. Hmm. I see. Uh, but going back to your idea, um, if you're saying that the national government should not you know, sweat out the details of what should be recognized as a national language, uh, what about with the local... Uh, would would it be acceptable for local authority like with the uh, the region or the province or city municipality to uh, make such a you know, to re uh, make such a, a declaration or you know, recognition or do you think it should still be with the people? Well, from at the local level, I think. The government, again, still should not meddle that matters of culture should be left in the hands of the people. But as far as officiating and arbitrating business, what we instead should have are leveling tongues or official languages. Languages that are not... Languages that are foreign enough to both parties coming to a deal that both of them would have no dominant relationship over the other cultural-wise and yet familiar enough that everyone can use it. I mean, if, like, between the two of us, we, all, we are already speaking in English. And yeah. English is foreign enough to have no skin in our game culture, as far as our, our cultural relationship is uh, concerned. As far as English is concerned, we, the both of us, everyone who speaks English is equal under English. But if we used other languages, uh, are ironically native to the Philippines, and then power dynamics come into the picture, and that's where that's actually one of the sources of our problems and uh, of our conflicts. So, um, what the government should concern itself with is with lingua francas, uh, not so much not so much legislating or imposing them, but rather making good use, making use of lingua francas, making use of official languages. And then if people already have languages that they have, um, that they already use among themselves, then maybe government should meddle with that. Even if, he, uh, talking about official languages, uh, in your perspective, Filipino, do you think Filipino qualifies as an official uh, language or no? Considering it's already um, admitted or not, it's being it's being spoken on a wide scale. Although it's a Philippine language, and there's that uh, you know that problem that you mentioned. Uh, considering those, do you think Filip uh, Filipino maybe uh, I don't know maybe considered as an official language or? What do you think about that? It should depend on what it means to have an official language. Like, like if we say the official language, basically it's just a language that you use for public documents. It's just a language that you use in the courts. It's just a language that you use for conducting business. Then there really shouldn't be a problem. And again, 
if it becomes an official language, then it should only be one of the official languages available to the uh, to the country. So, again, uh, again, that should be the choice of the officiating parties and of the contracting parties, which language they will use in the creation of public documents. But as far as education is concerned, of public policy is concerned, um, maybe, maybe there, there on that aspect, we will have arguments. Again, mm-hmm. all of this will depend on how you use official languages and on the legal implications of having an official language. An official language. On that, then maybe there should be more discussion. Like, what exactly does it mean to have an official language, and what rights, what rights and duties does such official language create for the ordinary citizen? So, as far as government uh, transactions or you know government communication, uh, that would not be an issue. But for you know education or policy then there should be more discuss at least there should be uh, more discussion on that well th- think of it this way what if our all of our laws were to be written only in filipino and that when you come to court a witness would have to tender his affidavit or his testimony in a language that he does not speak therein lies the problem well i guess that's uh like well like you said that's uh um i guess that's there should be you know a bit more uh thorough discussion uh with regards to the matter of language which uh yeah i I agree that should be and i see your point there uh with that said uh in your perspective uh at the very least, in the cons- uh, talking like the constitution, what particular lang- uh, change in regards to the language provision do you would you like uh, you would like or envision to see? The only language provision I could think of is that we should redefine what we should redefine what we think of as a Filipino language. So, in effect, what we should say is that. Any and all languages that are indigenous to the Philippines shall be recognized as Filipino languages. And that should be it. Okay. That all other languages be official. And and as far as official languages can be concerned, we should not have a provision for official languages in the Constitution. The official languages, as far as public documents are concerned, should be a matter for Congress to fresh out. In the case of federalism, it should be a matter for state or regional legislatures to flesh out. But as far as the Constitution is concerned, all our le- all our languages and cultures are included, are part and parcel of the Filipino identity. All of it will be considered, all of it will be defined as Filipino. So, so your perspective, uh, it sh- that it, the Constitution should recognize the equality of all languages. There's, there's be, there should not be anything that favors one language over another. That they mm-hmm. are all recognized and be given due protection and promotion. 
is that? Well, the problem is with the promotion and the protection part because again, you're right back with the main problem, which is manipulating culture by way of legislation, either by protecting it or by promoting it. So the way I see it, freedom also implies risk and danger. Having the freedom to determine your culture's fate also implies that you might make mistakes with that culture and those mistakes might be fatal. So, uh, again, that's an extreme opinion on my end and maybe we could temper that and maybe wiser heads could temper that, but that's my personal opinion. Because the moment you say, the moment you say promote or protect, uh, well, here's the thing. I've heard someone say that often the most insidious policies come from the brightest of ideals. Ostensibly, you might be saying that you want to do something good, but that might just be an excuse to doing something which unjustly enriches yourself. So again, when it comes to creating policies, we should be careful with our wording and with the rights and duties that we create. Well, that is a an interesting perspective, and uh, uh, but I do see your point. So, yeah, there's a uh, which goes back to what you said that there, at the very least, with regards to the matter of culture, there should be, you know, a more thorough, uh, you know, a more nuanced understanding, because uh, uh, learning from a talk. Even in our conversation, there are things that, yeah, admittedly, they're yeah quite new to me. So, uh, but anyway, going back to your point, so as far as you're concerned, at least uh, in the constitution, there should be at least like a recognition of languages and nothing beyond that. So it's uh, leaving it to, at the very most, to the people as to how they would like to push the language policy their language policies exactly because here's the thing one solution that might work for one language might not work for another language and if you enshrine certain incentives constitutional incentives for certain programs or policies then definitely some languages will be benefit and others will not be Instead, we should be completely decentralized in our in our approach to culture, and that people should uh, people should decide for themselves how best to deal or how best to pursue the ideals of their culture. And that that's the thing: the constitution the constitution should be a legal document should plainly be a legal document, not a cultural one. A constitution should not decide good taste or canon. Because, again, the law should not meddle with culture. And, well, that's my opinion. That's, uh, and as I mentioned, that, uh, you know, it's a very... 
I a uh, very nuanced, balanced take because uh, uh, there are, uh, you know, over the past, you know, as I've been thinking about, there are some varied uh, views with regards to language, uh, some which some of them may be radical or one in one or on one side or another. So we provided a very you know a new more uh nuanced and take on this particular issue and helped uh helped helped us better understand the situation and what can be realistically done to improve it so oh, well, you're, you're welcome and uh, i'm glad i was able to um present what i know and a few of what my my organization and I do believe. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, to cap off this uh, conversation, I guess you mentioned this earlier, but uh, to reiterate, what do you should a good constitution should be like, especially with regards to how it affects language and culture. How should a good constitution uh, look like? A good constitution should look like it could be understood by five-year-olds. It should be short enough that people remember each and every provision. It should be clear enough that people understand their rights and their obligations. And as far as its effects on culture should be concerned, what the Constitution should have should be basic rights. Everything else, as far as policies and particular programs are concerned, should be the domain of individual local legislatures. The Constitution should be a big-picture thing. Mm-hmm. It should def- define the rights and obligations of the individual as between individuals and as between the state and the individual. Everything else, the Constitution should not touch. Okay, that's a very sound point there. And on that note, uh, I thank you very much, RV, for taking this time to talk to me with regards to the matter of language and the constitution uh, thank you as well to your organization SolFed for uh, providing the opportunity to uh, uh, get this uh, conversation out there for more people to you know to realize the importance of a multicultural and multilingual society and country uh, do you have any yeah, uh, have any parting words before we end this? Uh, the, um, as much as possible, I would like for every one of us to keep an open mind, to keep cool heads, and that. Rather than closing discussion, I think we need more discussion because 
Um, the way I see it, the only way you could deal with bad speech would be with more speech. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, I encourage everyone to discuss more, <coughs> to talk more, and that we should talk <coughs> to each other, and that we should, you uh, um, basically, kamalani kon kon pwede lang adalon talan ito nang sa sogilanon kay kon panumdumon mo. This country is basically a product of con- conversation, social contracts. So I hope that we keep, uh, everyone keeps it together, that we keep everything together and um, the country stays strong and the country will withstand COVID and find its way back to prosperity. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Arvi. Maraming uh, salamat again for taking this time. And I hope you have a good day there and stay safe. Say words, salamat. That was R.V. Lebrilia from Save Our Languages Through Federalism. My thanks to him and Solfed for the opportunity to do this interview. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And yeah, we may do another discussion on language since, as you just heard, there are so many ways to go about in discussing the issue of language and the Constitution. Cannot promise a definite time frame, but it is in the cards soon. For the meantime, I invite you to follow our podcast at Red Circle, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit our website, constitutionproject.org, and follow The Constitution Project on Facebook and Twitter. This is Carl Aguilar of The Constitution Project, thanking you all for listening to The Constitution Podcast, and I'll catch you all next time.